Hello and welcome from Good Shepherd Church of Camarillo. We're so glad you're with us. Here's today's message. We get to Palm Sunday today, and I don't know about you, but I know over the years, as I've been familiar with this day, you know, in the church year, and as we approach Easter, I don't know about you, but uh, growing up especially, I was always a little bit confused by Palm Sunday. Um, You know, just this day that kind of just understood it as the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and there were palm branches being waved and cloaks being put on the ground, but that was kind of, that was kind of it. It was kind of this exciting celebratory day, but I didn't always understand exactly why. But as that video just pointed out, really, Ultimately, the celebration was the arrival of a king. The arrival of a king. Jesus, as the king of kings, entered into Jerusalem that day, and it was an exciting day. Whether people recognized him as the one true king, the king of kings and the lord of lords, whether they recognized him that way or not, It was a day filled with a lot of activity, a lot of buzz, I'm sure. Celebration of the arrival of a king, and maybe, maybe, just maybe, this king would bring about the deliverance that the people had longed for, the change that the people had longed for and hoped for, for centuries. We think of Palm Sunday as a day of triumph. Yet, at the same time, would imagine that it was a day filled with a lot of mixed emotions and probably a lot of confusion. There were those that wanted to make Jesus their earthly king. Others hated Jesus because of the success and and fame and, and his popularity that he had gained and through his healing powers and and people wanted to be with him. They wanted to be healed. They wanted to see the next big miracle. And some envied that. Some hated him because of that. And as crowds of people laid their garments on the road before Jesus, and and, and as they waved their palm branches, many of them probably had no clue that they were fulfilling Scripture. But what about Jesus? Think about the perspective of Jesus on that day. What was that day like for Jesus? What I want to focus on this morning is how Jesus himself would have had the truest, most accurate, the purest picture of what was happening around him. And for us to really fully understand what Palm Sunday is all about and who this king is, what we need to do is we actually need to back up in the story and we need to look at the journey of this king. The journey of the one true king, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, who would come and save the world from its sins. And as much as we'd like today to focus on the triumph and and the celebration of Palm Sunday, of Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem, we really need to understand the journey that this king took. And that's what we're going to be focusing on today. Uh, We're going to back up, not uh, Mark 11, but 
into Mark chapter 10. We're going to be looking at a few different passages leading up to the triumphal entry. But I want you, before we jump into Mark 10, you can open it up there. We'll get to it in a moment. But I want you to think of a time when you embarked upon a journey with a lot of mixed emotions. Maybe it was a, a trip you had to take and, and, and there was excitement about it, but maybe there was some dread involved in that trip or that journey. Maybe you knew that there was going to be some hardship or suffering up ahead. A lot of mixed feelings as you went into that trip. I went on a trip like this uh, a couple of, well, I guess three months ago now. Uh, back early December, I was recruited by a ministry friend of mine to go hike the Grand Canyon, do a Grand Canyon hike all in one day. So to start at the south rim of the Grand Canyon and hike all the way down to the Colorado River and back up in one day, back up on another trail. Altogether, it was going to be 18 miles. And there was part of me that got really excited about that. And to be honest with you, it took me about a month, like a full month, to decide to go and to finally come around and commit to going on this trip. Well, in the process of deciding, I threw out the idea to Alex, and Alex was all for it within a couple days. You didn't take as long. I didn't give you much time to decide, though, did I? (laughs) Alex decided to go. I recruited my next-door neighbor, and he took about like 45 minutes to decide to go on this trip. And so we drove out uh, to um, Arizona, out to the Grand Canyon. We drove out one day. We stayed overnight. And then that next day, we were going to be going on this hike. Now, a couple things that I knew going into this trip is the guy who had recruited me he was trying to paint a, kind of the full picture of this hike. And one thing he said right away, he said, this hike is not for the faint of heart. <laughs> he said, in fact, there's warning signs along the way. And so, as you can imagine, there were a lot of mixed feelings that I had going into it. A lot of excitement, just the exhilaration of being there right in the Grand Canyon, being down at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. But kind of slightly terrified, to be honest with you, uh, going into it. Being somewhat afraid of heights, I started thinking, well, what if I come around the bend of of this trail and there's this major drop-off, like right in front of me, you know, and I'm halfway down the Grand Canyon and I, I get paralyzed because of the fear of heights to just make that one little pass around that corner. I started to imagine all of these things. Or, you know, partway down to the Colorado River, are my knees going to give out just from, you know, the, the, the stress on my knees? Or, or what if on the way back up, you know, 14 miles into this hike, what if I just can't make it any further? And then I started to think, well, why, why do people do this? Why, why am I even thinking about doing this? Why would I voluntarily do this to myself? And I want to show you just a couple pictures. As we went in, as we got into this hike, there's Alex and I. That was really early in the morning. We were maybe like a couple miles in. And there's another one of me um, just, just partway down. And then I'm going to show you this picture right here. 
I am not kidding. This sign, there was a sign, a warning sign, maybe what, a mile or two into this hike. Warning, what does it say? It says, hiking to the Colorado River and back in one day is not recommended due to long distance, extreme heat, and a nearly 5,000 foot elevation change. If you think you have the fitness and expertise to attempt this extremely strenuous hike, please seek advice from a park ranger at the Backcountry Information Center. Well, we forgot to do that. (laughs) Uh, But we were with an experienced hiker, a guy who had made this trip several times, and so that brought us a lot of comfort. And he was like, you know, there are warning signs, and there are warning signs for certain people for a particular reason. Uh, But he said, I have confidence that you guys can do this. And he encouraged us to do a little bit of conditioning ahead of time and and all of that. But we we made it down and we we made it back out. And it was an incredible experience. And I was tired. I was sore at the end of the day. But I was very sore, extremely sore the next day. Alex can attest to this too. We would, uh, we were driving back from there and we'd stop at a gas station and we'd literally like get out of the car and have to do stretches just to like, like stretch out our calves. They were just so stiff. Stretch out our calves just to walk into the store or walk in to get something to eat or whatever. Uh, but it was an amazing experience, but um, not without, you know, just that hardship along the way. And, and it was strenuous, and there was a lot of, a lot of um, uncertainty going into that. Now I think about Jesus. Think for a moment about Jesus as he set out for Jerusalem. He had a true full picture of what he was going to experience ahead of him. While he knew that he'd be welcomed into Jerusalem with triumph and with celebration and and praise, he also knew what he had come to Jerusalem to do and how his ultimate purpose was to go to Jerusalem to suffer beyond what anyone can comprehend to take on the most cruel form of punishment and the most cruel form of execution known to man. He knew that. He knew as he set out to Jerusalem. But listen to what it says here in Luke 9. We'll get to Mark here in just a moment. But Luke 9:51 says this. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. Now, this, the meaning of this, this, this phrase here, set his face, literally can mean set his face like flint. Set his face like flint. Now, I had to do a little research into what, it, what is this meaning? And this is what I came across just in, in my understanding here is flint is a very hard type of sedimentary rock. And when this rock is struck against steel, a flint edge produces sparks to start a fire. So setting your face like flint implies that you're expecting opposition and that you'll need to stand strong in the face of adversity. Is that what Jesus did? That's exactly what Jesus did, that he set his face, set his face like flint toward Jerusalem, 
So what it means for Jesus is that he fixed his eyes on this opposition that was ahead of him. And he saw this task, saw this mission that God had for him, and he saw it as worth it. For Jesus, it meant a firm resolve, a firm resolve to go to Jerusalem and not to be welcomed and praised by the masses, although he was, but ultimately to go and to suffer and to die on our behalf. And listen to what it says in Hebrews 12, 2. It describes Jesus as the founder and perfecter of our faith. This is what it says about him. It says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Who on earth would ever think of it as joy to go into the suffering and the pain and the crucifixion that he was going to endure? This is the king that we worship, the king that rode into Jerusalem that day. And when we think about that king that entered into Jerusalem, we need a, a better understanding of who this king is so that we can fully welcome him and welcome him for the king that, that he is. And so what we're going to look at today from Mark chapter 10 is we're going to see a, 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 a truer, a more full picture of who this king is, this king that was welcomed into Jerusalem. And we're going to see Jesus as the suffering servant savior king. I'm going to repeat that. We're going to see Jesus as the suffering servant savior king. I want you to say that with me. The suffering servant savior king. Now, I want to ask, do those words describe a king? I don't think any of us really ever associate suffering, servant, or even savior, because savior implies rescuer. We don't often apply those words to a king. It's kind of an oxymoron, right? The, the suffering king? That just doesn't make sense. But this is what we're going to see in Jesus as he, as the king, goes on this journey to Jerusalem the suffering servant, savior, king. And we're going to stop a few places along the way here. But uh, first, we're going to see Jesus as the suffering king. And this is from Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 32. Let's—I'm going to read this for you. It says, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise." Think about this for a moment. If you were one of the disciples, think about how it, how it describes the disciples here. 
They went out with Jesus toward Jerusalem. Jesus was there walking ahead of them, and it says that they were amazed on the one hand. It says, and then those who followed were what? Afraid. Afraid. Amazed, and yet at the same time, afraid. And it's no wonder, given what Jesus tells them. It sounds awful. Think about this. He says, we're going to Jerusalem. He says, I'm going to be delivered. I'm going to be condemned to death, delivered over to the Gentiles. That just makes it even worse as they're hearing this. They're probably thinking, no, no, you're supposed to save us from the Gentiles. You're supposed to save us from the Roman oppression. You're supposed to set up your kingdom here, and you're, you're supposed to set us free. That freedom that they had longed for for so long. And then it starts to sound even worse. He says, I'm going to be mocked. They'll spit upon me. They'll flog me. Those of you who are familiar at all with flogging or have done any study on that, it was absolutely brutal. We take the criminal, often tie them to a post, and just multiple whippings, lashings with these thick cords that often had uh, sharp, jagged edges of bones or hooks on them, pieces of steel, metal, to just rip apart the flesh. And that's what Jesus is telling them that he's going to go through. Flogging. And then even worse, he says, and they will crucify me. The most brutal form of execution. And the Romans were, they didn't invent crucifixion, but they were known to have perfected crucifixion. And they specifically designed it to, to produce a slow and painful, maximum pain and, and, and suffering that the criminal would experience. Now this gives a totally different perspective on the triumphal entry, doesn't it? As Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he knew that his purpose wasn't to set up his earthly throne there. He knew that his purpose was to come and to suffer for every person that hailed him as king. Jesus knew what was needed more deeply. Jesus knew what mankind needed, not an earthly ruler, not political freedom. He knew what mankind needed was to be rescued from sin, and that was the only, he was the only way that that was going to happen. One commentator says this, about Jesus coming into Jerusalem. He says, the subjects of other kings come humbly to them. This king, speaking of Jesus, this king comes to his subjects. Other kings draw all they have from their people. This king gives all that he has to his people. This is the king that we worship on Palm Sunday, the king that came to do what he did later in the week, that Friday. 
And then ultimately, he gives a glimmer of hope. He says, and after three days, he will rise. But do you think they heard that? (laughs) I probably wouldn't have even heard that part. I probably would have maybe even doubted that part. But he knew his mission. He knew himself as the suffering king. What we see on the next part of Jesus' journey here is we see him as the servant king. The servant king. Verse 35 and following, two of the disciples, it says, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Jesus, I'm going to ask you something. We want you to do it. We just want you to do it. And he said to them, Well, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. Because see, they, they're thinking in their mind, you know, Jesus is going to set up his kingdom. You know, would you, in this life here and in the life to come, could we, you know, there's two of us. That works out well. Can one sit on the right and one sit on the left? Jesus said to them, he says, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. So confident. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant with James and John. So what is Jesus teaching here? What does it mean for Jesus to drink this cup that he is going to drink? What's he even talking about? And the baptism with which he is about to be baptized. Well, these are figures of speech to refer to intense experiences of suffering and death. It was somewhat of a common understanding. This cup and this baptism to signify suffering and and death. In fact, early Christians referred to martyrdom as baptism with blood. That puts some perspective on what Jesus is talking about here. And so they really don't. They really don't have any idea what they're asking for. And Jesus tells them, okay, yeah, you got it. (laughs) You will drink this cup. And you will be baptized with this same baptism of suffering. He's telling them, you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer as my disciples. And then he uses it as a teachable moment, and he uses himself as the ultimate example. Verse 42 says, And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you 
must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, Jesus could say this with full confidence because of what he was about to do. Because he was on his way to fulfill this promise and to fulfill this principle to the fullest extent possible. In fact, later that same week after they came into Jerusalem, Jesus gathered with his disciples in the upper room, what we know as the Last Supper, the last meal that Jesus had with his disciples. I want to read a verse, a couple of verses here from John's Gospel. And specifically, this is with the New Living Translation. This is what it says. It says, Jesus knew that his hour had come, as he's there with them at this final meal. His hour had come to leave the world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth. It says, and now he loved them to the very end. Or other versions say, to the fullest extent. And it's referring to something immediate. It's referring to what Jesus is about to do in that very moment, which I'll get to in a second. But it's also referring to what he's going to go through that next day as he hung on the cross. And then as he rose again three days later, he did that because he loved them so much. Verse 4, this is how he demonstrated it. It says, So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that he had around them. This was a job for the lowest servants. This king then on his hands and knees, washing dirty, stinky feet, I mean— we kind of get grossed out by feet today. <laughs> Imagine what those feet must have been, that, those dirty, dusty feet that probably just stunk from sweat and those sandals and who knows what they stepped into along the road. But yet here's the king of all kings on his hands and knees in this profound act of servant leadership showing that Jesus is not only the suffering king, but he is the servant king. And what is it about our human nature that thinks that we're owed something? We can tend to laugh at this request of James and, James and John. Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask. We want to sit at your right hand and your left hand we can laugh at them, but we tend to do that very same thing. We try to maybe impress our teachers with hopes that we'll receive some kind of reward. Or with our neighbors, we might do a favor, and if we're honest with ourselves, so often we go into it with the mentality that it's a trade-off. That somehow the favor I do will return to me. Or sometimes even charities or causes that we 
support might be motivated by the fulfillment that it brings to us. Now, we can be fulfilled in our service and in what we do for others. But in our human nature, we're often motivated by what it's going to do to serve us and to fulfill us. Or even in the church, we often can make our involvement about how can I be blessed? And I love spiritual gifts assessments and understanding our spiritual gifts, but in this world, this day and age of where we're just taught, you know, just fulfill yourself. So even, even spiritual gifts can become about how can I do my best and how can I be best fulfilled when in reality, sometimes God calls us to something that is uncomfortable or something that we need to grow in and be stretched and challenged. Here we see this picture of the model king, the one true king in this profound act of servant leadership. And what if, what if we had that attitude of Jesus? It says in Philippians 2, who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And as he says here, for even the Son of Man, this King, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As you go into Holy Week this week, are you seeing Jesus as the suffering king and as the servant king who could have probably cared less about the laud and the honor and the glory that he was receiving? Now we know that God just receives that. All glory belongs to God. But that wasn't what motivated Jesus. It was him as the suffering servant king. And last, as the savior king that motivated him on this journey to Jerusalem. Let's read Mark 10, starting at verse 46. And it says, And they came to Jericho. As he was leaving Jericho with his disciples— and a great crowd. Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. Now, in Jesus' day, blind people were treated very poorly. Most were left on the roadside, just like this, this man, Bartimaeus. There was this teaching and mindset that was so prevalent among the Jewish people that if a person was blind, it was probably the result of some kind of sin in their life or maybe some kind of generational sin. And they're blind because they're suffering the consequences to that sin. And so the prevailing thought was that this person deserves to be sitting here on the roadside begging. But what do we see Jesus did? It says, verse 47, And when he heard, Bartimaeus, when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. 
Now this was starting to create a lot of ruckus and to cause a scene. Here we have this blind beggar who has just kind of forgotten, left on the roadside. I mean, there's a king passing through here. He doesn't have time for him. No one's even thinking about him. But he cries out, and really this word cries out means to shriek. Can't even hardly imagine what this must have sounded like. Verse 47, then they rebuked him, telling him to be quiet. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And verse 49, this king, this savior king stopped and he said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. Verse 50, throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Now I want to note a couple things here. This might be familiar to many of you, the story of Bartimaeus. But something that was new to me was this note where it says he threw off his cloak. This is significant because for a blind man, this cloak was one of the only things that he had. And it was supposed that his cloak was there in front of him, maybe on his lap or right in front of him, to receive whatever donations, whatever coins, or whatever anyone wanted to give him. And yet when he heard that it was Jesus— and when Jesus called him, what did he do with it? He threw it aside. Not knowing probably if he, was he going to be able to find those coins again? Was he going to even be able to see? Or his cloak to keep him warm. But for Bartimaeus, it didn't matter. It didn't matter because he knew who Jesus was. And we see exactly who Bartimaeus believed Jesus to be. Jesus, the son of David, the promised one, the Messiah. He knew that Jesus was the only one that could restore his sight, but he knew something even more important about Jesus. That Jesus was the only one that could rescue him from sin. So what did this king do? Imagine what Jesus was looking ahead to and the burden that Jesus must have been carrying along the way. And I know anytime I've got something heavy on my mind or heavy on my heart, like I, I just tend to block out everyone and everything else and can only think about maybe what I have ahead of me. But that's not what Jesus did. Even though Jesus was intent on going to Jerusalem, intent on going to the cross, what does he do? He pauses. He pauses to have mercy on this helpless, precious human being named Bartimaeus, this blind beggar whom no one else would pay attention to. 
But what motivated him even most, not just to restore his sight, but was to give him the hope and the salvation that he had longed for, that he had looked forward to. So what did Jesus tell him? He said, go your way. Go your way. Your faith has made you well. We can understand that as your faith in me has made you well. Not only brought him that physical healing that he had longed for, but fulfilled his deepest longing, the deepest longing in his heart. And I think back on this past year, being that we're just over a year into everything with COVID and all the restrictions put in place and the crisis that had, has come about and, and all of that all throughout this past year. And I think about, you know, where we're at now and just kind of that hope and that longing of like, ah, oh, we just want it to go away, right? <laughs> we just want to be done with this and, and move on. And, and even if we pray for that and just pray for it to go away, that can be great right? What else would, what, what more would we want right now? <laughs> but what does that ultimately gain us in our hearts? And I think of people maybe that have not had the hope of Christ. And maybe they've been extra cautious and just waiting for this to go away. A little bit like Blind Bartimaeus just waiting for the day maybe that he would be healed. But even for Bartimaeus, if he receives his sight but doesn't receive forgiveness of sins and what Jesus, the Savior King, wants to give him, he's still just a man that can now see. It's a little more fulfillment in this life, but still with a hopeless, empty heart. And as we go into Holy Week this week, I wanna want us to picture ourselves as blind Bartimaeus, that Jesus entering into Jerusalem, he entered into Jerusalem for each one of us who are helpless, who are broken, who are blind. We sing that song, I was blind and now I see. But that's what, what motivated this king to suffer. That's what motivated this king to serve. Not to be served, but to serve. And that's what motivated this savior king who brings hope to every one of us. I'm going to invite the team up as we close with now this song, Christ Our Hope in life and death. And I really want you to focus on the words of these songs. Focus on what we're singing. It says, Now and ever we confess Christ our hope in life and death. And what an anthem for us to sing, especially thinking back on this past year, being reminded of our hope, being reminded of our salvation, being reminded of the emptiness of life without Jesus. And yet Jesus came that Sunday into Jerusalem, his face like flint toward what he was going to suffer on our behalf to give us hope 
in life here on earth, in death, and hope of eternal life. Let's pray. God, that is what we confess now and, and evermore, that you are our hope in life and death because of what Jesus did for us as he entered into Jerusalem that Palm Sunday. And I pray that this week that you would help us to gaze upon Jesus and his beauty, his beauty as the suffering servant Savior King who died on our behalf and who rose again in the power, by the power of God to defeat sin and death and the power of the enemy once and for all, that we can have eternal life. I pray, God, that this song we sing would be our continual confession, our continual reminder that you are our hope in life and death. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.